Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So nobody can gather in groups larger than 10, unless you're at a wedding reception, and then you can have a group of 300. Welcome to the new era of the coronavirus. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, the Cleveland.com editor, here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski and Laura Johnston. Jane Cahoon is taking the day off. We're going to get straight into the wedding section. Were you surprised a little bit about some of the things you heard yesterday? I was stunned. I, 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 300 people is a lot bigger than 10. So this was a, a big uh, surprise from the state yesterday. All right. Well, let's, let's get at it. Can people in Ohio get married with big receptions, play miniature golf, or go bowling? As I said, this was a bit of a shock. The logic seems to be it's not really a gathering of 300 people because they have to sit down at tables and then it's it's within the 10 limit, <laughs> which doesn't make much sense. Laura Johnston, I'm really, really struggling with how a wedding reception of 300 people with booze is not going to break down into coronavirus Petri dish. Right. I mean, mini golf makes a lot of sense. It's outside. Regular golf has been going on this entire shutdown. Bowling, you get your own ball, your own lane. I get that. The wedding floored me. And I'm sure there were a lot of ecstatic brides and grooms on Thursday afternoon. June is wedding season after all. And I, I firmly believe that Lieutenant Governor John Houston is going to get a lot of toasts at receptions this summer. <laughs> um, I also wonder if some couples had already canceled expecting that they'd have to abide by the shutdown because this gives, what, 10 days before you can all of a sudden have a wedding. There's so many but, 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 but drill into it. We heard from somebody that's done wedding right, planning this right. morning. We're going to explore this. But her point was, when you have 300 people at a wedding, it's generally a buffet. It's not them serving 300 people, that you need an enormous staff to serve 300 people at the tables. And, and she went step by step through right. all of the difficulties you'll have here. You know, the other thing is you can't have a dance floor because that, that's, but, that's still prohibited. Do you think they're going to follow it? There's so many questions. Social distancing at tables. You, everybody knows you go to a wedding. You don't know the 10 people you're sitting with or you're not related to them. You're definitely not living with all of them. I mean, how are they going to do tables? You are and having... One of and one of the purposes of the, you know, the bride and groom make the rounds and they talk right. to all the people that have come to their wedding. How do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but, and I mean, the, the dance floor is another thing. This, these regulations make it sound like it is a restaurant. Like that was the idea. Like this is going to be just like a restaurant. You'll have to space out. You won't be able to drink standing up. But don't tell me they're going to have police and public health officials visiting every wedding at every country club all summer long. The wedding planner who emailed us said it exactly. There's alcohol and there's like this joyous spirit of a wedding. There is absolutely no way that people are going to spend the night sitting in their seats, talking quietly to the person next to them. Chris Ramsey. What kind of country club weddings do you go to? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been to a wedding in no. a while, but well, I but I look, I was in a wedding back in December, and when they announced this yesterday, my first thought was. Like, I just think about like how many times 
you intersect with different people at one of these things. You know, you're standing with the wedding party and then you get to the reception hall and then you're shaking hands with family members. You're there's a you're reception bump, line. You're, yeah, the you're, point you're, is bump, you're bumping into people. people. Like like the other the only thing that I can imagine is is that these rules assume everybody has really boring weddings where everybody just sits down and like stares at each other and doesn't talk or or hug or you know get in line to get food and you know it, it's but but you're getting together with relatives you have not seen in six months or a year right. i mean th- this is the definition of the place for hugs and and catching up i mean the whole the word is a reception that's what it's that's what it well, means i and i'm sure I just don't see it and people drink and people get looser and people get you know i you know i just this seems like it's going to cause some problems i hope it doesn't but but it seems i I mean the the catholic church is not even going to let everybody back in mass so if they have church weddings or maybe they don't but like you couldn't even get 300 people at a church at this point you know in the pews because you're supposed to be social distancing so i mean i don't even know how you do a ceremony i mean not every wedding has to have 300 people obviously that's a really big wedding but But even 100 people even 100 people Right. And you are right, Chris. These are your, this is your family. These are your best friends. These are the people you have known a lot of your life. And you're not going to want to stay six feet from these people. You're going to be like, you know, screw it. It's my wedding. I don't care. The one time in your life while you're alive, the other is your funeral, where everybody who is in the room is there because of you. This is your friends, your relatives. This is the big, biggest day of many people's lives. (laughs) And to expect that in that, what you described, the jubilation and the, that people are not going to violate every rule that is in Mike DeWine's order book. It's preposterous. And look, we've all read the, the case studies where one sick person who doesn't necessarily know they're sick goes into some gathering and the next thing you know, half the people are right. Uh, Those super spreaders, they don't even have to be sick. I think it just happened in South Korea where the guy went to three bars in one night and they're tracking down thousands of people. You right. know, it's you just need one. All right. Before we move on from this one, though, bowling, you know, <laughs> but, well, wait, you think that you could do social distancing with bowling, but put yourself in the setting. Two lanes share the ball return, right? So so unless the people on the lane next to you are are people that you live with, you're with strangers. And there's a lot of air movement in a bowling alley. And we've seen the stories about how if somebody exhales and the breeze blows it over to the other people, they can get sick. I'm a little unsure how that works. Well, you know, you wait for the ball return. The guy next to you is waiting for his ball return. You're not really that far apart. I don't, I, I kind of have a hard time well, seeing maybe how that works. Close half, if they closed half the lanes, I think it would yeah. make it a lot safer. So did that everybody they, did, had their own ball return, I guess. Yeah. Did, did they, did they put any guidance like that? In they, that is supposed to be coming out today. Uh, they said by the end of the day, Friday, but knowing how, how kind of lame their pool requir- requirements were, where they didn't address anything specific about pools other than saying, don't wear a mask while you swim because it's hard to breathe. I can't, <laughs> I, seriously, that was in the order. I can't imagine that they have anything as specific as ball return. All right. Well, I, I mean, I still get, can't get over it. You can't have a gathering of more than 10 people except at a wedding reception where you go to 300. That one just completely floored me. 
Didn't did not see that coming. Not quite sure what they're thinking. List this week in the CLE. What is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine doing about the coronavirus disparity in minority populations? This has been a developing story since the beginning. Minorities are getting much more hammered by this virus than other populations. Chris Ranowski, Mike DeWine had been telling us he was going to come through with some ideas. And Thursday, he finally did. What are they? So the the major news that came out of this announcement is that the governor is creating a full-time position at the Department of Health, and that person will be solely devoted to issues of social uh, determinants on health and opportunity in minority communities. And he said that that position will initially have a focus on the coronavirus and the impact in those communities, but he also said that he plans to continue to keep that position as long as he's governor in order to focus on other issues like infant mortality and lead poisoning, which also affect minorities at a disproportionate rate to uh, to other communities. So, I mean, this has been a problem. And, you know, just by the numbers, like Ohio's population is 13% African-American and 26% of the people who have tested positive for the coronavirus thus far are, are black. And and 31% of those people are, are that are hospitalized are black. And 17% of the deaths are African-Americans. And similarly, it, it, it's, it, Latinos make up about 4% of the population, yet they make up about 6% of the people who have tested positive. So I got to tell you, I felt like this was underwhelming. And it's almost the inverse proportion rule of how long it takes them to lay out what they're doing as to how valuable it is. Like, you know, John Houston came out yesterday and in about three minutes laid out the rules for weddings and bowling and ministered off lots happening there. Right. It took a half hour for Mike DeWine to lay out his plan for the for the minorities and the coronavirus. And in the end, it, it mostly felt like we're going to do a public relations campaign. We're going to expand testing for minorities, although they didn't really explain how. And we're going to create a position that's focused on this. And there is a pretty serious urgency right now, right here for the rest of this year Mm -hmm. to protect minority communities from getting this virus, because when they get it, they suffer much more than everybody else. And Mike DeWine was very passionate in saying as governor, he feels that responsibility, but it just doesn't feel like there's a lot going on. The the person that was, I don't remember his name, but the person that they had brought on that was part of the committee must have said four or five times he trusts the governor to come through with the money that it's going to take to do these publicity campaigns and work with the the media that that are most consumed in minority populations to get the message across, almost like he wasn't trusting it. What is going to be different a month from now? about the way this is happening. We don't know. I mean, he said he said that there there are more plans that they they plan to kind of roll out in early June. He said that they're still kind of working on on putting that stuff together. I I think what was telling about this is 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 that some people, I mean, it 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 almost was delivered to the public like it was stunning news. I mean, he said this pulled back the curtain on a lot of a lot of health issues in minority communities, which if you pay attention to these things, it shouldn't be news. Like it's, well, it's come on. You know. I, and, I, and, I, I call BS on that. I mean, if you've been reading cleveland.com and the plain dealer at all these last five years, I mean, 
the, 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 the Plain Dale reporters did really good work exposing the disparity in infant mortality. I mean, right. it's hugely. Um, we've done all sorts of things on the health disparities and, and, and the uh, inherent racism that people feel. So when he was laying out that stuff, like it was somehow, you know, look what I've discovered. And it's kind of an eye roll time because this is not news, as you point out. But it's a, but it's, there's, there's some hard truths that we have to acknowledge here that, you know, that our government has a tendency to overlook, you know, the issues that exist within minority and, and especially in Cleveland African-American communities, you know, I mean, we have, you know, we have so many deep decades long institutional problems that, that, you know, things like cutting budgets and, you know, not letting cities hold on to all of their money, you know, stuff like that has an impact on that. You know, access to healthcare is a, is, is a huge problem. Access to, to good food and, you know, things like food deserts. I mean, right. these are, these are the- all things that, that nonprofits, governmental research, it's all out there. And, but, and you okay. have to make a so, conscious decision to this not. Is Laura Johnson. Didn't you say, Chris, yesterday that you thought that he was using this platform where everybody, you know, the wine do with the wine, watching it to expose a health yeah. problem that has been and, there? And, and, and he was just, he's got a captive got audience, you know, listening to him right. say these things, you know, and that's the other problem is that there's part of the, it's not just a governmental problem, you know, there's part of the population, you know, and, and look, it's, a, it's as white people, you know, we're three white people, you know, and, you know, we, we read these things, we understand it. But there are people in this population that just flat out refuse to say, like, yeah, that is a problem. And, and the government and society owes some debt to this to fix it. And okay, to- but that does not deal with the immediate problem, which is there are a whole bunch of people that are in higher levels of danger from COVID-19. Right. And that's what the point of this task force was. So we'll have to see if they come out with more substantive ideas than a public relations campaign and some vague notion of expanded testing. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What news have I missed while I've been focused on the coronavirus pandemic these last three months? I sent a note out on the text messaging account that I have saying we were doing this, and I got a whole bunch of people saying, really glad you're doing that and suggesting ideas. We've all spent the last three months focused almost entirely on the coronavirus, because it is the biggest story of our lifetime, but a whole bunch of other stories were happening before and have been happening since. Laura Johnston, what does our reporting show? Well, there is a whole lot of news uh, that's been happening over the last 10 weeks. Uh, I'll give you a quick rundown and we can go into anything. Uh, Sherwin-Williams' new headquarters is still in the works for Public Square. The Port of Cleveland actually approved a $15 million in bonds for that project yesterday. Uh, NOACA set aside $250,000 for a proposed Lake Erie Trail. That was the big idea Armin Budish came up with last fall, but it includes Lake and Lorraine for this study as well. Plans are continuing on a new Justice Center. A committee is trying to figure out what to do with the Global Center, which is a.k.a. the MedMart. Um, lots is going on with state ballot issues, which we've been reporting this week. Marijuana sales keep going up. The U.S. Census is still happening. The Blockland Conference that was supposed to make Cleveland the center of this new technology is now virtual. That'll be in December. And the Picasso and Paper exhibit, supposed to come to the Cleveland Museum of Art this month, like this weekend, I believe, is now pushed back to September. I really enjoyed uh, reading this story because it was just rat-a-tat-tat of 
lots of juicy uh, little updates on on stories that had consumed us before whatever March 10th. I mean, we were covering the coronavirus since late January, but but when the state shut down, it became the end all be all. We're going to continue to cover the coronavirus, but we're also going to to, to cover these other stories. It was a, a nice package and you can find it on cleveland.com and in Sunday's Plain Dealer. It's this week in the CLE. What's the death toll from the coronavirus in Ohio nursing homes? We thought it was about 40% of the deaths based on what we had been reporting, but we had known for a while we were missing a lot of data. Chris Warnowski, that other data came through and the findings are much more dire than we thought. Right. So uh, Cleveland.com data guru uh, Rich Exner reported earlier this week that more than 1,200 people in nursing homes and other long-term care facilities have died from the coronavirus. And if you put that all together with that, uh, with the, the rest of the deaths, that, that means that 70% of Ohio's deaths are in some kind of nursing facility, nursing home facility or long-term care facility. Overall, the state reported Wednesday a total of 1,781 Ohioans are known to have died with the coronavirus, and of them, 53% of them were at least 80 years old, and another 25% of them were in their 70s. And Franklin County is the leader in nursing home deaths throughout the state, with Summit and Cuyahoga counties uh, representing the fourth and fifth, respectively. And You know, because this virus attacks the oldest people the hardest. I mean, it's really, you can see it in the in the stats the state puts out. It's not a surprise that you would have a lot of deaths in nursing homes, but 70% of the state's deaths being in nursing homes. I mean, did anybody see that coming? It's difficult to treat in older people. And, and so I, I mean, I don't want to say that people were just assuming it was just going to just, you know, kill a lot of older people. But, you know, I mean, we, we kind of saw this coming and 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 yet this this still seems staggering by comparison you know and 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 to be honest i i mean i really don't know what it says about our response to this yet and our you know so i think time will give this a little more context and 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 as we continue to report on this issue we'll we'll get a better picture of of whether the response to this was appropriate whether you know whether homes took this serious and, and buckled down or whether there were gaps in coverage and, and, and how they responded to, you know, helping their residents uh, battle this. So, yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's got to be some public health lessons for nursing homes and stopping the spread of a pandemic. I mean, one of the things that we had yesterday that, that uh, John Coniglia wrote about was that, you know, the state, the state loosened its rules on AIDS at nursing homes, but you know some of the advocates are saying that that could cause more problems than it could help. You know they were trying to ease the staffing issues that exist in a lot of nursing homes. I mean, a lot of these homes have very very small staffs that they they work a lot of overtime, and you know as again as we've talked about before on the podcast is when you when you have small staffs and then you you overwork them that that's when mistakes happen and, and issues with care arise. So there's, you know, I, I suspect that there will be somebody on, at the state level will probably take a look at this at some point and we'll be, you know, and we will certainly be looking into this problem for the foreseeable future. Right. John Caniglia did a nursing home project about a year and a half ago at the point dealer, and he's kind of got a 
laser like focus on nursing homes in the pandemic. We'll see what else that he produces. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How busy is the Cleveland post office system during the coronavirus pandemic? You know, I've noticed that our mail carriers making multiple trips through the neighborhood each day and just wondered, you know, how busy are they? I had no idea how busy they are. Laura Johnston, what did they tell us? Well, you know how when everyone gets really excited about something, they say it's like Christmas? Well, this is just like Christmas in May. Package delivery in Ohio is up 70% with everyone ordering everything they can online. So the post office has had to hire extra staff. They're making multiple deliveries a day to some homes. And the surge has been so strong that May is on track to surpass last December in the total number of post office package deliveries in the Northern District. That includes Akron, Toledo, Canton, and Youngstown. So that would be the all-time record for package deliveries in one month. We could set that record in May. And this is the postal service that Donald Trump says is useless and should go out of business. And it sounds like it's the lifeline for a whole lot of people. Yeah, this is Chris Bernowski. It sounds to me like we should vote by mail. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A lot of this extra volume is coming from Amazon deliveries since the U.S. Postal Service is the top delivery provider for Amazon. And so they even deliver Amazon packages on Sundays and holidays. So, I mean, they're working hard. Well, and that is the president believes the Postal Service is charging Amazon too little. Of course, Amazon is owned by the guy who owns the Washington Post, which Donald Trump is no fan of. So there's weirdness there. But if you see your mail carrier, give them a salute because they are working hard. It's this week in the CLE. Why won't the Bureau of Prisons do what a judge says and make the lockup in Elkton, Ohio, safe during the coronavirus pandemic? This is a weird one. The federal district judge in Cleveland keeps telling the Bureau of Prisons to do what it takes to keep the older people and the people with health health conditions safe in the prison. They keep fighting it, and they're fighting it all the way up to the top of the land. Chris Ranowski, what's the latest? So if people remember, the, the federal prison here in Ohio, in, in Elkton, is, was a, one of the worst. It was pretty bad. It was so bad that it, as far as medical staffing was concerned, that the governor sent the National Guard in there to help out. And, and back in April, federal judge James Gwynn of Cleveland ordered the Federal Bureau of Prisons to clear out inmates who are older than 65 or people who had like a series of risk factors that made them susceptible to the virus. And if you remember, the prison has basically said, you know, here's 800 people who fall into those categories. So they did what the judge asked. They went out and they identified all these people. But now it's asked the Supreme Court to basically put a stop to Gwen's order, saying that the plan was deeply flawed and that it was unreasonable. So all of this started because the ACLU of Ohio filed a lawsuit requesting the release of all these prisoners. And um, earlier this week, U.S. Justice, uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor uh, gave the ACLU until 10 a.m. today to file a response to the, Bris- the prison bureau's claims that that this was unreasonable. So this is a kind of to be continued story. And we'll know more about this probably about the time this airs. So keep keep watching it as this kind of develops. Yeah. And I, I have a hard time predicting what this Supreme Court will do. Will they side on the health and welfare of the inmates or will they kind of go with the argument that the coronavirus is everywhere and, and these people did bad things. They deserve to be in prison. We just need to take more steps to keep them safe. This court on some law enforcement and jail reform ha- has been surprising. Neil Gorsuch has actually been 
a pretty big advocate for criminal justice reform. So, you know, court watchers, average people who go, oh, you know, he's a Trump appointee, how it's amazing that he does this. But he's he has some some pretty, you know, deeply held beliefs uh, that are related to justice reform. So he he has a tendency to side with the the liberal wing of the court. So but I guess we'll see, you know, we'll know by the end of the day. Oh, well, we'll know something. Well, we, by might the end know, of the we might know. We might know by the end of the day, but we're certainly going to hear the ACLU's argument by the end of the day. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. Are Cleveland State and John Carroll Universities bringing students back to campus this fall, like Case Western Reserve University is? When we talked about Case's decision a few weeks ago, we said we expected to hear a lot of decisions in a hurry because if people are coming back. The campuses have to get ready. Laura Johnston, what's the latest on these two? So John Carroll is planning to open campus on schedule for in-person learning starting August 31st. That was the original start date. Faculty, though, is going to update courses throughout the summer. So they're going to follow a hybrid plan of online and in-person format. John Carroll's calling this high flex. That way, if there's a second surge of coronavirus cases, it'll be easier to move everything online. Plus, that should keep class sizes smaller but they they don't have any word on dorms or sports yet. And then Cleveland State is very specific in their news. They're opening up labs for professors and grad students on May 30th. No undergrads yet, no no word on the rest of their multi-step plan to repopulate campus. Okay, so we expect that we'll we'll be hearing from everybody in short order, right? And I mean I all do, Yes, and I do think they are going to be plans that have a lot of flexibility and have some kind of hybrid. I don't think anybody's like, sure, come back to campus. It's totally normal. Well, we might get an idea based on what happens in China. I mean, if there is a second surge, we might see it starting somewhere else and be able to get an idea. Okay, it's coming here and then they can plan accordingly. But they do have to lay in their plans. And let's face it, if you bring a bunch of people back together, you're going to have to do all sorts of strategies to make sure that they have social distance available and hand sanitizer and everything yeah, else. I mean, if you're going to have to add like part, you know, those partitions, the the plastic in all of the cafeterias, and you're going to have to figure out how to do the seating in lecture halls. That's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time and money. And these schools are all cutting budgets because they are hurting for cash. So this is a, a crunch time for universities. Well, we ha- yeah. It's, what's interesting is, is the state really hasn't begun working on its next two-year budget, which starts July 1st. Uh, they're still trying to, to balance the one we have, but you can bet when they finally get around to the next budget, there'll be less money for the universities. And you're right. They're going to have much higher costs if the kids do, uh, do return. It's this week in the CLE. How did it go when restaurants reopened for sit-down inside dining on Thursday? Uh, reporters Mark Bone, Annie Nikolov, Hayden Grove, and photographer David Petkowitz spent the day yesterday checking in on this, talking to people, getting inside their heads on what they were thinking. Laura Johnston, how did it go? So far, so good. I mean, the photos showed some really relaxed looking people on patios. We didn't go inside the restaurants because we wanted to keep our people safe. Um, so, but what from it looked like, nothing like the the photos we saw over the weekend these looked like people out looking to enjoy a nice evening. And I mean, no one was wearing masks, but you're like, well, they're at a table, they're eating and drinking. So uh, it looks like they had a nice controlled start back. 
I, I, w- I sent a note to the to the team that reported on this yesterday because I thought their story was just filled with insight. They, they, they really got into the heads of the people who decided to reopen, what their strategies were. One, it was to, to position the plants. They didn't want it to look like a sterile hospital ward. And the people who decided not to because they just felt they couldn't keep their patrons safe and they were making do with, with takeout. It just a, it was a great story that, that had lots of depth and perspective. So if people are curious about going out to restaurants, they might take heart in what they find in that story about the thought that went into reopening. Uh, we were all over the place. I mean, they got to, they talked to a lot of places. So good news for people that want to go out. I think a lot of people still don't. It's this week in the CLE. Well, I get to see butter sculptures, eat lots of fried food, ride on rickety carnival rides, and see farm animals if I go to Columbus in June. Of course, I'm talking about the state fair, which Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, repeatedly says he's the biggest fan of it. What's going on with it? Well, I don't think that this is Laura Johnston. I'm not sure that you would eat a lot of fried food, even if the fair was open, Chris. I can't see that. No, I would not. (laughs) But I would. Um, Yeah, it is closed. And this is, you know, Mike DeWine has said, I don't know how many times that no one loves a fair like Mike DeWine. And I think he's still trying to figure out a way to salvage the junior fair, the 4-H program working with animals and lots of other activities uh, for kids in the summer because he's really passionate about that. But the Ohio State Fair folks said they just couldn't see how they could manage a fair with social distancing and they don't think they could finance it because it's expensive. So they, they decided to call it off. Yeah, it sounded like what they said is if we have to do social distancing, we have to greatly cut the crowds. And almost a million people went last year. And if they greatly reduce admissions, then they lose money. And so financially, let alone the health aspects, they couldn't do it. Chris Wernowski, are you very sad that you were not going to be able to go to the Ohio State Fair? I mean, I am a fan of butter cows, but (laughs) (laughs) But they always do it different. Actually, in Ohio, I don't even know if they have a regular cow anymore. Right. It's always something different. One year with the Cavs championship, they had a whole Cavs motif. And every year they have a whole new theme. It's a very big deal. They do not unveil it till like the big grand opening of the fair. And then we always have tons of pictures. So, well, well, I could I could get a lot of fried food, a bunch of rickety carnival rides and some farm animals and 300 of my friends and just call it a wedding. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's this week in the CLE. We will leave it there. We hope everybody has a great Memorial Day weekend. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Chris and Laura. This week in the CLE will return on Tuesday. 